Would you pray together with me? And gracious Heavenly Father, we have declared several things in our worship this morning. The very first, that you are here. That declaration of your presence, Lord, is not something unique and unusual. You inhabit the heavens and the earth. You overarch them all. There is no place that we go that we, that we are apart from you. And yet, Lord, there is something special about this place and about this time that is set aside in our hearts and is holy. And so we declare that you are here, but Lord, we also declare that in being before you, we need you. That Lord, through the course of our lives, even in the matter of days, uh, wrinkles have developed in our soul that, that need to be ironed out by your presence. That Lord, we need to hear your word to be refocused upon your will for our lives. That, Lord, as we come in worship, that we become obedient once again to you. And that, Lord, in this reunion of spirit and in worship, Lord, we declare this to be the case. We declare ourselves to be in need. But having made those declarations, Lord, we go even further. We now open our hearts in obedience to you. So speak to us, I pray. Do your work within us, and Lord, guide us in the path, the way that leads to everlasting. This we pray in the powerful and the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. There is an old German fairy tale that goes this way. Once upon a time, there was a a white knight uh, looking for adventure, and he came to a village where the legend had talked of a, of a terrible ogre who lived in a pit and terrified the village. Uh, bravely, the white knight uh, took up the challenge to take on the ogre. He would do battle with that ogre and would go into the pit. The people, when they met him, told him of several courageous men who had already come. And they had climbed down into the pit, but no one could ever remember any of those champions climbing back out. They had all perished down low. So the white knight, he, he, he took one look into the pit. It was actually just a deep, dark hole. The opening was very narrow. He couldn't take his armor with him, so he stripped off his armor and all the unnecessary clothing, and he only took a long dagger, which he tied around his neck with a leather strap. And after securing the, a rope at the opening and testing his strength, he, he gripped it, and he began to lower himself hand under hand, letting the rope slip through his fingers. Soon, he, he felt the cool, smooth floor of a chamber, a dark chamber, It took several minutes for his eyes to adjust to the darkness, uh, but soon he was able to see that there there, there was a large mound. And he realized that the mound in front of him was the bones of his predecessors, along with their assorted weapons. And a little way off, he spotted another little mound, and he wasn't sure what it was. But suddenly he was surprised by the inhabitant of the pit. He was surprised because he didn't, didn't understand or didn't expect the ogre to only be as tall as a rabbit, about this big. A nasty-looking little creature, but only about this big. And and so the ogre stood before him and began to wave his arms and screech with a little squeaky voice and tried to appear as fierce as possible. (laughs) 
And the white knight picked up his sword from the floor, and he prepared to do battle, but quick as a rat, the ogre ran to a hole near the second mound and disappeared. The white knight followed him, and the second mound became clearer as he got closer, and again he was surprised because before his eyes there glittered balls of gold as big as grapefruits and, 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 and diamonds as big as plums, and, and with only a small part of the treasure, any commoner could become a prince for life. And, and that little ogre actually lost its importance. For, forget the ogre. There was a great treasure. But the, but the white knight had a problem. He couldn't carry it out of the hole because he had no pockets. Who would believe him if he didn't bring back at least one little piece? And so suddenly he had an idea. He would take one of the diamonds, as big as a plum, and he would put it in his mouth and he would carry it that way until he climbed out of the hole. He could always come back for the rest later. So hurriedly, he chose one of the larger diamonds and it fit comfortably into his mouth. And he began that, that climb out of the pit, hand over hand, gripping the rope with his feet. And, and his tongue held the diamond tightly against the roof of the mouth. And higher and higher he climbed uh, until the heavy exertion began to render him breathless. And, and he'd have to breathe through his mouth in order to get enough air to continue. And so he took a large gulp of air, but when he did, the diamond slipped and got stuck in his throat. And the white knight, choking on the treasure, lost consciousness and fell to his death on the mound of bones below. And you thought all fairy tales ended with happily ever after. They don't. Nor does the parable that we have before us this morning. Because, you see, the tales and parables point us to a truth. And here the truth is obvious. That the terrible ogre in the pit was not that silly little troll. It was greed. It was greed in the heart of the man, the white knight, who saw easy treasure and the hope of unearned gain. And the glitter of the world that he could see in the dimness ended up choking him to death. You find warnings woven throughout the Bible. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, set your mind on things above and not on earthly things. You hear that warning in Matthew chapter 16, verse 26. What good will it be for anyone if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul. You read that in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied. In essence, the warning goes right to the heart, to the core of being where our basic attitudes and commitments are forged. Now, in our study of the Gospel of Luke, we come to such a moment in the 12th chapter where Jesus creates a focus that defines the very core character of a man or woman who would belong to him. And it's no surprise that this focus has to get past the issue of greed. Let's be honest, it's an issue that we all face. Don Robinson writes that the greatest weakness of our age is our inability to distinguish between needs and greeds. 
the, the inability to sort out and then fix our heart on what is truly needful for our life. You hear that when you go to the grocery store and, 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 and a little child is in the, the cart and, and sees the candy that is coming out now for Easter and says, I want the candy. And mother or father says, no, no, we don't need that. But I need the candy. The greatest weakness of our age is our ability to distinguish between needs and greeds. I was intrigued by a report published by the Higher Education Research Institute, which said that 75% of college freshmen, university freshmen, said that their most important life goal was to become wealthy. Only a fraction said it was important to develop a philosophy of life. And hardly any said it was to become the man or woman that God meant me to be. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus drove, dove through the motivating forces of the human heart in Matthew chapter 5, and he said, Seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness, God's kingdom, God's righteousness, and all other things shall be added unto you. It's a lesson that we all need to face. And it's the one presented by Jesus Christ here in Luke chapter 12. Listen to the setup as it appears in verse 13. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Version because there there are some close use of the Greek that that is there that, that appears in the translation. In verse 13 we read, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide up the family inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me as a judge or an arbiter between you, the two of you? Now, now, there's a passage in James that explains the dynamic as a play here. In James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? <laughs> because a fight has broken out between brothers. And, and James goes on to say, Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want, so you quarrel and fight. That's what it says in the book of James. And here we have a situation where two brothers are locked in an inheritance battle. Now, some of you know what that's like. You, you may have been locked in your own inheritance battle. Uh, where, and it's amazing how money can, in, in fact, split apart even the closest relationships that, that can be found in a family. And here, a certain man has elbowed his way through the crowd in order to get in front of Jesus and simply blurts out his demand. It's not a request, notice the way it's posed here. It is a demand. Teacher, tell my brother to divide up the inheritance with me. Now, you may wonder, what does this have to do with Jesus? In fact, there's a question that's the question you get actually from Jesus' own reaction because he says right away, he says, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Why are you coming to me? And the fact is, in that ancient setting and in the customs of the day, it was a legal precedent for someone to do something like this. If Jesus was considered a rabbi, he would then be considered to have the legal authority to settle such disputes. Often matters like this were, in fact, settled in the synagogue by a rabbi in the same way that we would go to court today. Considered like the civil court. 
In fact, I get the feeling here that there are some who would like to do that today rather than going to civil court. I mean, it's one thing to have a judge rule in your favor, but it's something else to go into a sanctuary and know that God is ending up on your side. For many, uh, (laughs) that explains some of the fervor behind lawsuits. It's religious in nature. It's theological in impact. It is a battle of the gods. And I suppose it would have been well within his powers here for Jesus to render a judgment. But instead, he refuses. Why? The answer is very simple. His greatest concern is the condition of the man's heart. Because that is where the real conflict lies. The issue that was at play was not a matter of inheritance, nor is it that the man's brother was an enemy. The real issue is that sin had affected both of them in their own ways. And in ways, the man had actually outed himself with his own question before Jesus. We do that sometimes. I still remember one time when my boys were quite small, my my second son came in to me and said, Dad, you're going to have to spank BJ, his older brother. And I said, why? He said, he hit me back. <laughs> really? <laughs> you know, you out yourself with your own demands. And here he has outed himself with his own question as well. And that's why we get the judgment then in verse 15. Jesus then said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. In ways, his statement in verse 14 is a rhetorical question. Who appointed me to be your judge, your arbiter? And the answer, well, uh, God, I guess. I'm coming to you as a religious figure, a rabbi at the least, the son of God at the most. Okay, fine. Then, if that is the case, then here is how God sees it, Jesus is saying. A financial settlement is not what you need. A legal opinion is not going to solve your problem. Here is how God sees it. You've got a tumor in your heart, and it's called greed. And until you deal with it, nothing will satisfy you. Nothing. I have many friends who are lawyers, and I've talked with them, and and, and they will tell me how they will represent clients in lawsuits. And even if they win, with all the money that they demand, they, more often than not, do not solve their problems because there is something deeper at play. That issue of heart that is deeper than any legal remedy can solve. And so Jesus says, beware, be on guard against greed of all kind. And that word in the Greek simply means a desire to have more. That's how the Greek translation comes from the word. You might call it an insatiable craving. I like the way Ken Geyer pictures it. Imagine, he writes, a shipwrecked sailor on a life raft in the middle of the ocean His terrible thirst impels him to drink the salt water. But it only makes him thirstier. And this causes him to drink even more, which makes him even thirstier still. He consumes more and more of the salty water until, paradoxically, he becomes dehydrated and dies, like the white knight with a diamond within his mouth. Do you see that insatiable drive to self-destruction? 
And just in case that warning was not enough to convict this man's heart, Jesus takes it one step further and tells his own story. A fairy tale, a proverb of his very own in verse 16. He says, the ground of a, of a rich man, a certain rich man, produced a good crop. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to sh- uh, store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I'll say to my soul, that's how the actual Greek renders it. I will say to my soul, um, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Now what I want you to note about that particular parable is that it starts out with a very neutral tone. A very neutral tone. The man has obviously done very well at picking out the perfect place to farm. As any real estate agent will tell you, there are three important things in picking out property. What are they? Location, location, location. Very good. And, and he has already located himself quite well and done it on good ground. There is nothing wrong with that. Even more, he has, he has a, a long-range business plan that really works. And his business plan is to tear down barns and big build, uh, build bigger ones. And again, there is nothing wrong with that. It is just good planning. It is prudent management. The Bible says a lot to commend good planning. And dare I say it, there is nothing inherently wrong with the fact that, had, that, that the man had wealth as a product of it all. It, it, it is not just the wealthy who wrestle with greed. The poor wrestle with greed just as much. And maybe even more so because they're frustrated by not being able to answer that insatiable uh, 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 need within See, greed affects all of us, poor as well as rich. And it's seen here, then, as he explains why he is building his barns. He, in his explanation, he exposes his motivation in life. If you look at this story again, and, and you can count on it as I'm talking, in just two verses, the word I, me, and my appear a dozen times, 12 times. It's my barns, it's my grain, it's my goods. And even when he uses the word you, he's actually talking to himself. In verse 19, I will say to my soul, you. And so you becomes a me. That little phrase, I will say to myself, reveals it all. That word for myself is the Greek, is the same for, translated as my soul. And, and you could translate it as saying, I will say to my soul. And with that, he has revealed his greatest aspiration, his deepest aspiration, aspiration that the soul will find its satisfaction by being able to eat, drink, and be merry. Twelve times, maybe thirteen. I, me, my. Oh, there may have been a time early on when it wasn't that way. There may have been a a time early on when he began his business with a heart that was, in fact, possibly, possibly centered on God. And, and, And he may have even dedicated his life and his business to the Lord. But now, God's not even in the equation. It's just I, me, mine. Not once did he look for t- toward heaven and give thanks to God for his bounty. 
Not once did he look toward heaven and seek counsel on how to use what had had been given to him in abundance. Not once had he he sought out in prayer a, a, a guidance to know how to serve and to give of himself in the same way that Jesus, the Lord, came to serve and to give of himself as a ransom for many. Not once had God entered the equation of his life And it may have been that there was a time in your life where you, in fact, were eager to honor God with your talents as you were stepping out into the world. But that time may have been long, long ago. And now you find yourself in a place where, in fact, you own your own life. So much so that you deserve your own inheritance because you've earned it. And you've earned it all. It's yours. And in practice, there is no compelling need for you to turn to God at all except to get what is yours. Every once in a while, I'll come across somebody who laughs at the practice of having a prayer before a meal. In fact, I I had a friend one time who laughed at me whenever I we were together, and, and, I, and I stopped, and he said, what are you doing? And, you know, are you falling asleep? And I said, no, I was praying. Why? I pray before every meal. And he says, why? He says, why thank God? You're the one who's earned the bread. Why should I thank God? I'm the one who's earned this bread. Here we have a man who may have been an expert in real estate, may have had a degree in agriculture, may have had an MBA in planning and management, but the fact is he knew nothing about tending his own soul. And so he saturated himself with comforts which were never enough and were always seeking more. And finally, it comes down to the final exam where death strips it all away and he is left empty before eternity and is naked of all things as he stands before God. And God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you and now who will own what you have prepared? And so the man who lays up treasure for himself is not rich toward God. I don't know how many rich farmers there were that day around Jesus, but I know that he was surrounded by men and women who were desperately seeking more out of life. And I have to believe They're here today too, you and me together. What will satisfy the soul? When will enough be enough? And what is enough? And in verse 21, Jesus, as Jesus pulls the curtain on his little drama, he gives an answer. He says, this is how it will be for anyone who stores up for of things for himself, but is not, and here's the key, here's the money quote, rich toward God. Rich toward God. Just put your finger on those last three words. You could spend a lifetime putting meaning into those three as they stand together. What does it mean to be rich toward God? Go back for a moment to the warning that Jesus gave in verse 15 and listen to the way the warning reads. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. 
Doesn't that just hang in the, in the air like a dangling par- participle, begging for a conclusion? Okay, so life doesn't consist in the abundance of possessions. What does give life consistency? What will make my life complete? And what will bring my soul to rest? Man's life, go back to verse 21, must be rich toward God. And on your sermon outline, I've posed that as a question that brings the sermon to a close. What does it mean for you? What will it mean for you to be rich toward God? For for some, it may mean that for the first time you open your heart to God. Maybe for the first time and receive a wonderful gift that that cannot be deserved nor can it be earned by by, by the the industry of your hands. It is a wonderful gift and it is of grace and it is his love. And, And you open your heart and you become rich for God when you say, I will belong to Jesus Christ and receive from him the gift of salvation. Because when you do, you become a child of God. And in that, you inherit the treasures of heaven. So for some today, maybe the day where you decide that you will not wait, like this rich man, until it's too late, until the time of reckoning has come, and, and, and the measure of your life leaves you with that discovery that, in fact, you are lost. But it may be that today, and even here, and even now, that worship has led you to that place where you hear the word and you say, I am in poverty before God and can only become rich by receiving the gift of his grace. What does it mean for you to be rich toward God? I sat down thinking about that as I was preparing this week and thought, what what does it mean to be rich for God? And I, I came up with three things that I'd encourage you to take to heart. The first is that when you realize that you have already been blessed with much, that you bow with thanks to God. For it has been His grace that has been more than enough. You become rich toward God when you bow in thanks. And, and that when you are faced with the future, that you don't plan for the self, but you plan for eternity. How will my life be lived out in service toward God and his purposes and his plan? And the third is that whether with little or much, you are rich to God when you live to serve. Some of you know that I went to university, well, to Wheaton College. I transferred in there from the United States Coast Guard Academy and lived in a dormitory for transfers, and the name of the dormitory was St. Hall. And it was right across from Elliott Hall. Jim Elliott and Nate Saint were two missionaries that were students at Wheaton who graduated and then went down to South America and then went to a tribe of the Alka Indians only to be killed by the Indians upon first contact. I read the story of Jim Elliot. There was a little phrase that, that, that was written over the doorway to the dormitory that has stuck in my heart and has guided me so well. It says, as he wrote in his diary, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. 
Repeat that again. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And we come to the crux of the matter even now. Will you be rich toward God? Opening your heart to him and in thanksgiving for all that he has already blessed you with and all that he will seek to bless you with in the future and how that shall be used to the glory of his name and to the service of his purposes. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which is eternal and cannot be lost. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we would thank you for a word that corrects us and, Lord, seems to iron out the wrinkles in our soul. For, Lord, we confess very, very readily that, that we get bound up in the issues of our day and we take them to heart so much so that we take them to ourselves. We begin to own everything around us. We own our families. We own our work. We own our accomplishments. We own our achievements. And yet, Lord, in the, in the stillness of the night, we realize that, that it is not enough. There is something more. That, Lord, in fact, we were created by you and for you and, 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 and are not satisfied until, Lord, we are yours heart, soul, body, and mind. And so, Lord, we would bow before you and give you thanks. We would open up our hearts before you and in obedience to your claim in our lives, give ourselves to you so that our greatest satisfaction would come by being known as the man of God, the woman of God, whose riches are all defined by you and by your purposes. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.